To Deviant Women. Deviant Women! We, we just have to sing it. it. Yeah, gotta sing it. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lauren. And we're here with you on episode number 11. 11. I can't believe we made it to 11. We have. Yeah, we skipped out on celebrating we episode number 10. completely missed it. It was a milestone and we it didn't acknowledge it at all. That's right. We were discussing. Didn't get my diamond. No, that's right. Discussing trying to figure out what even a 10th anniversary. Didn't get my ruby. No. I don't know what it is. We decided maybe paper. Paper, yeah. yeah we I'll, give each other paper all the time. Yeah, but I'll origami you something Thank special you. if you like. That'd be really great. And what are we drinking this episode, Lauren? We're drinking... What are we drinking? We're I drinking Scotch, Scotch and Coke. Coke. I was going to say rum and Coke and then I was like whiskey and Coke, but no. This week we're joined on my lap by a cat. Lola! This is Lola. So if you hear cat noises purring other cat-orientated noises in the background, it's Lola. Can you tell on. us Lola's full name, please? Oh, Lola's full name that she gives the cats on the street is Senorita Dolores Encarnacion Perez. <laughs> That's her full name. But, but um, her close friends call her Lola. Her close friends call her Lola, yeah. Strangers have to call her Dolores. Yeah. But, but so Lola's fine. If you guys want to tweet... Make sure that you're tweeting at Dolores. At Dolores. But you're not on a nickname basis. You haven't been formally introduced yeah. properly. And she's an angry cat. <laughs> she's an angry cat. She's feisty. She's feisty. She will scratch your eyes out. She's got some pizzazz. Speaking of pizzazz, our listeners have pizzazz. They sure do. We've had so many new listeners over the last couple of weeks. From a whole bunch of like really exciting new countries. I think we've been joined by Belgium and the Netherlands and South Korea. And Malaysia. Yes. And hello to the Philippines. Hello you, Philippines. As well. Doing that makes me feel like I'm on Eurovision, actually. <laughs> like, hello to the Philippines. <laughs> I don't know why I did it in that kind of accent. I don't even know what that accent was. But yeah, we've been astounded by the amount and of people new... have been tweeting and emailing us and it's been great. Listeners from Egypt. We've had people listening from Egypt before, haven't we? Yes, we have. Well, that's very appropriate for this um, week's episode because this week's episode we're going to be in Egypt. We're going to go back in time a very long way. <laughs> That's a great song. <laughs> I really like it. A very, very long way. The furthest back in time. By quite a lot. By quite a lot that we have been yeah. thus far. So for anyone who's been like, are you ever going to move out of Victoriana? The answer is yes. We are. <laughs> right oh, now. Although... Let's start our story All right. in Victoriana times. Okay, because we can't escape it. I actually we're a little I in really, love with it. I really love Victoriana. Yeah, but the other thing as well is that when it comes to talking about people from history, there are points in time that are written about a lot more where you actually have recourse to talking about these people. That's right. A lot less written about people in ancient Egyptian times. Yeah, and written only by very particular people. Yeah, that's right. Often carved in stone Definitely, on walls. Very but permanently. Or, yeah, and destroyed. Once stone's destroyed, it's gone. It's, yeah, that's going to come into play I today. I know it will. It will. I do want to say on that note about Victoriana... Most of what I know about this person's life is actually based on a book by Michelle Roberts called In the Red Kitchen, 
which is also based on the life of Florence Cook, who you might remember from our very first episode. In the Red Kitchen, by the way, was part of my PhD thesis, so I know a lot about this book. (laughs) And um, yeah, there's a section on there that is based on this person and writing on stone has a little bit to do with it in terms of gender. I didn't know. I haven't read that book, so I didn't know. Ah, Fascinating. So So we're talking about Hatshepsut. Whose name Pharaoh. I can never say. Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut. Like ketchup. Just like ketchup. Like catsup, which is how they say ketchup in some countries. Just like that. Or some yeah. regions in America, Just maybe? say Hatshepsut. 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 Pharaoh Hatshepsut. So, we're going to start in the 1800s, though, because... There was a massive surge in Egyptology. Yes. Because tombs were being uncovered. Pilfered. Pilfered. Loitered. Loitered. Looted. 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 People were loitering in tombs. But they were also doing that. While looting them. Yeah. And a lot of mythology about mummy's curses. Yeah. Bram Stoker wrote a novel called The Jewel of the Seven Stars, which was about a mummy's curse. And it was quite a popular sort of phenomenon i suppose when i was a kid i really wanted to be okay so i didn't just want to be an explorer i didn't just want to be an adventurer but i wanted to specifically be a victorian explorer oh that's a difficult goal to achieve well i probably would have needed to change gender or to do an Mm. isabel and also travel in time well yeah that that too (laughs) i was i was thinking i could be the isabel eberhardt of egypt Right. But because I wanted to be a part of those first people who went into the tombs and were uncovering everything for the first time. Yeah. And everything was still there. The Howard Carters. Yeah, exactly. Mm. The Howard Carters. But then also maybe not die of a curse. Yeah. That really frightened me. Yeah. Also. Well, it frightened the Victorians it as well. Risk. It frightened the Victorians to the extent where one guy who I can't remember who he was or what he did, but I know that he had a mummy that he used to sit down and have his lunch with. That's weird. At because you, know, you could just the buy mummies that or the, the breakfast. Market. You could, exactly. Yeah. You could buy this stuff, which is really horrible when you think about it historically, all it's, that stuff that's lost. To... I know. But anyway, but <laughs> after... Should... Sorry, her face. You just like face palm and you're like, anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but after he died, his family buried the mummy out way out under the vegetable patch because they were so terrified of it. Well, I'm not surprised. I wish I could mummy. remember that story correctly. <laughs> but was that because they didn't want to be cursed? They just, oh yeah, they, didn't or they just really didn't but like a dead person. In I think they were room. also terrified that it might just like at any moment move and yeah, come to life. Fair, fair. So we know that in the 1800s there was a bit of mummy fever. Yeah. And this, as I say, was because ancient Egypt was coming to the fore. People were finding things out. There was a French Egyptologist called Shem. There was a <laughs> there was a French Egyptologist called Champollion. You, you, Champollion? Yeah, you're better at French than me. French is your thing. I think thing. that you sounded fine. Oh, did I? Okay. Champollion. And he, champ, champ, I don't know. Champollion. <laughs> Whatever. Sorry. Uh, he was actually famous for deciphering the Rosetta Stone. Oh, yes. Yeah, so the Rosetta Stone was basically this enormous piece of granite, I yeah. think. And it has a decree carved into it in hieroglyphics, but also in ancient Greek. Greek. And from that Champollion was able to basically crack the hieroglyphic mm. code. Thus unearthing a treasure trove of Egyptologists. A literal treasure trove. Yeah. And so it was this same French Egyptologist who in 1828 discovered 
a little bit of a mystery. Oh, yeah? He's at a place called Deir al-Bahari, which is a mortuary temple, uh-huh. a beautiful mortuary temple that exists in Egypt. still exists. You can go and visit it and hopefully one day we will do that. Hopefully it's still there. We'll have a deviant women escapade. Live from Egypt. And we'll go live from Egypt. <laughs> and we'll go to said mortuary temple. Well, apparently I'm going to Egypt. Now, there was a conundrum on the wall. In the mortuary temple, because everywhere he saw the name of Tutmosis the Third, a pharaoh he was aware of and had translated before, he also found another name for a King Hatshepsut. Mm. He'd never heard of King Hatshepsut. Didn't know who this king was. Even more confusing was the fact that everywhere that King Hatshepsut was named or pictured, he came before. Tutmosis in the place of honor. Right. So that indicates that there's a power relationship. That's right. They were the foremost of kings in this relationship. Mm. Even more problematic was the fact that Hatshepsut, everywhere the name appeared, the verbs and the nouns were in the feminine. Right. Okay. So is Egyptian a language like one of the romantic languages where there are feminized versions of words? I don't know about modern Egyptian, but but in terms of hieroglyphics and ancient Egyptian, there were differences Mm. in pronouns and verbs. Cool. And so this confused him greatly because he didn't understand why this king would be referred to with these feminine prefixes. And Egyptian names appear as what's known as a cartouche. So it's Mm. a collection of symbols that represent that person enclosed in sort of a ovals type shape. So he kept seeing this everywhere, but didn't understand why it was feminized. And also why this particular king kept getting referred to as the daughter of the sun. Mind blown. This makes no sense. What are we talking about, you crazy ancient Egyptians? Daughter of the sun. Daughter of the sun? How could it be? This particular riddle, to he never figured it out. So he wasn't even able to be like, oh, so maybe they've just written king instead of queen. And because of the fact that all of the verbs and the pronouns are in the feminine, indicates that perhaps there's a possibility that this person was a woman. No, that no, it just never blew, crossed his mind. Basically, basically just blew his mind. <laughs> he basically just never they figured can't it out. Be a female just leader. basically never figured it out. The hieroglyphs that he used just basically confused Egyptologists for about another hundred years. Right. Okay. No one could figure it out. Oh, interesting. But eventually the riddle was solved. Mm-hmm. When we realised that, indeed, the king was a woman. What? The pharaoh was quite simply... A woman. A woman. Hey, what do you know? Today we're just going to go back and we're going to... How did this this happen? happen? How did this happen? (laughs) Well, interestingly now, Egyptologists suspect that there's probably been about 15 or so female pharaohs in history. Because the other thing that we need to keep in mind as well is that the Egyptian like civilization lasted a really long time oh my gosh like it was enormous so Hatshepsut by the time we're talking about Hatshepsut coming into power yeah. the pyramids had been built a thousand years before See, this is she even was born yeah and she comes and she's in the middle in the middle point she's in the middle like point of the Egyptian between her and like Cleopatra and Correct. so like as old as the pyramids are to Hatshepsut is the same age that Hatshepsut is to Cleopatra. Correct. There's an enormous gulf of time. So really, I mean, we're talking thousands of years and obviously within thousands of years, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of pharaohs. Correct. Yeah. Dynasties. Yeah. And so 
In all that time, Hatshepsut is not an anomaly. Mm. There are actually other people. I mean, it would be cells. statistically ridiculous to think that she would be an anomaly. Well, do you think? That's interesting. <laughs> That's a discussion for another time. Okay. <laughs> but, but also, ancient Egyptian society was quite an egalitarian society. Women owned property. Yeah. I mean, when I say egalitarian, there were slaves. All right. So it wasn't yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, it yeah. wasn't perfect. We're, we're talking in context. In context. Women were allowed to choose who they married. Yeah. So they were allowed to have jobs. Yeah. Meanwhile, like, well, obviously Greece came at the end of this. That's right. But women there did not share the same rights. And I think when we talk about female Egyptian rulers, people think of Cleopatra. Mm -hmm. Cleopatra was at the very, very end. Yeah. Just before Rome came into power and just before Egypt came under Rome's basically jurisdiction. She's at the very end and she was really only ever a regent for her brothers who she married mm, well anyway, they all did they all did it's it's going to be the podcast of incest today <laughs> well actually that is largely what michelle roberts focuses on in her depiction of a fictionalized version of a queen like hatsepshit in, in the, the red, red kitchen, kitchen. Yeah. we should all go out and read in the red kitchen yeah you should it's great You've done an excellent job of promoting michelle roberts today <laughs> on the show excellent So, yeah, I think obviously people have these ideas about women in power in ancient Egypt, largely, I think, shaped by that sort of myth around Cleopatra and beauty as well. Like, you know, and also Nefertiti as well. Cleopatra was not even that beautiful. Yeah, this is true. The coins don't depict a very beautiful woman. Well, Nefertiti, I think, is depicted as quite a beautiful Mm. woman and is famed to be quite beautiful too. So... Really, the myths that we tell about these women are very much connected to their beauty. Yeah. And the myths about Hatshepsut or the truth about Hatshepsut is not about that. Mm. We're not interested in that. We're not interested in that at all. If it's not her beauty, then why did she get all that power? Well, to begin with. Sorry, that was a weird way to say that. Yeah, there were actions with that as well that everyone (laughs) would have have missed. Yeah, you start on my grand gesturing too. So the point in time that we're talking about is sort of circa like 1505 BC. Yeah, very long time ago. BCE, however you like to refer to it. Mm -hmm. So a really, really long time ago. And quick segue, I used to work with this woman who didn't understand why numbers went backwards after you like she couldn't figure it out she just could never figure it out she's like how could you die before you were born no that's not not it that's not how time works that's not how it works time is a construct time is a construct (laughs) everything's a construct with us isn't it like we're just we live in this world of abstraction everything's a construct academia does to a person (laughs) it's like can't think about anything in solid terms (laughs) yeah so a huge period of time had passed between the rule of pharaohs who were building those huge pyramids the sphinxes they may even still been mammoths when they were building those did you know that that can't be right apparently bullshit i read that somewhere you read that in a lying thing that's <laughs> that's the lie but that's one of the theories is that maybe mammoths helped them build the pyramids <laughs> oh god don't make me have this argument with you i'm not saying it's true I'm this is gonna be like that argument i had to have about whether or not the aliens built the pyramids. I'm not saying I subscribe to this theory. I'm just saying that it exists. It's a great theory. And I don't know the truth. Maybe they did. That's fine. But they weren't there when Hatshepsut was yeah. there. Yeah. All right. They were gone, I assume. The, yeah. And the aliens sure. had moved But the in. pyramids were still there. The pyramids were still they, there. Were they still covered in gold at that point? Um, I don't think so. No, most things had been looted by then. Because what actually had happened was there was a huge period between that sort of golden era of ancient Egypt and when Hatshepsut's father, Tutmosis I, mm. comes into power. And in that kind of period of time, 
Egypt kind of goes a bit to shit, really. So they um, have their own dark ages. They have their own dark ages and a lot of stuff is already looted. Yeah. A lot of those tombs are emptied out in this period of time. It is a thousand years. It is a thousand years. More than. Uh, Egypt at this point isn't the power it once was. But Moses I, who was, as I say, Hatshepsut's father, he sort of restored the glory of Egypt and started campaigns that won back land. He went on campaigns into Nubia, which is sort of um, modern-day Sudan, Mm. and recaptured a lot of land. And he was the pharaoh who began the Valley of the Kings. Right, yep, cool. So, yeah, the pharaohs used to be buried in the pyramids, blah, 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 difficult. Why are we doing this? This is a hard thing to do. Instead, mm. why don't we do an opposite thing that's really hard and just, like, dig out caves instead? Because that's heaps easier. <laughs> well, yeah. Sure. I mean... He was quite a glorious ruler. And he had five children with his first wife. So in the hierarchy of your royalty... Your pharaoh has his great wife, mm. wife number one. Then there's a bunch of minor wives. And then below that, there's going to be a bunch of concubines. Mm. So there's a lot of children yes. that are fathered yes. in this period of time as well. Many children. Many, many children. And from his first wife, the king's great wife, there were five children, four of whom did not live past their parents. Mm. Hatshepsut was the only one who outlived her father, cool. who outlived her parents. So in terms of the lineage of pure royal blood, she's the only one that's got the pure royal blood, Mm. so she needs to be put on the throne. But, of course, she needs a man. She needs a pharaoh. She can't rule by herself. Why would that happen? Who would would have thought? So there's Tutmosis II, who is a... Let me guess. Her half-brother? Her half-brother, yes. Because he is the son by one of the minor wives. So this is her half-brother. And this is how you keep the line pure. Absolutely. And so fathers married daughters, brothers married sisters. It was not uncommon. And the concept of incest didn't really exist. Doesn't exist exist. in the same way, definitely not. Didn't exist. And this is the thing. When we're talking about this, we really do need to remember to put our contemporary ickiness aside (laughs) and just be like, this was to consolidate power. This was a, they probably had some issues with their health. <laughs> yep. But it was because they didn't want to water down the blood. Can't contaminate that bloodline. Yeah. That pure royal bloodline needs to stay yeah. intact. And they really didn't think of it as being incest. It wasn't a taboo in the same way. No, not at all. So her marrying her half-brother is perfectly fine. Yeah. Could be worse. Could have been her actual brother. But that, it wasn't. Yeah. So half-brother, that's great yeah. on the standard of things. So she marries Tutmosis II and he becomes pharaoh. But he's a bit of a weakling. He's a bit of a nothing pharaoh. And I've sort of heard it said that the best that can be said about his reign was that it was uneventful. Okay. (laughs) Which is is pretty... It's like, oh, yeah. And for somebody like Hatshepsut, who had grown up with a father who was restoring Egypt to glory, who was doing all these amazing new building works, who was a military leader, who was a campaigner, having a boring husband like Tutmosis II who just basically did nothing would have been really quite Mm -hmm. frustrating because she was used to glory. She was used to power. But fortunately for everybody involved and for the point of this story, Tutmosis II doesn't live for very long, which is great. He dies. They were married when she was 12, just so you know. 
Okay. She was 12. So and he was like in his 20s. Where we also say that the cultural differences, but this is one where I find the ickiness not so easy to put aside. <laughs> oh, you're okay with brothers and sisters? I feel like I can departmentalize brothers and sisters because they're consenting adults, you know? Yeah, I guess. But they probably also, brothers and sisters probably would have been married when they were 12 anyway. I mean... I know. Look, it's all, it's all difficult. It's all difficult to deal with. Yeah, I just find the incest easier than the 12-year-old marriage part. Which, well, unfortunately, she was 12. Yeah. He was in his 20s. Oh. But he was useless, and that's, that's great. That's fine. Okay. They did have one child together. They had a daughter. But fortunately, uh, Tutmosis II dies off, and at the age of 32, Hatshepsut, is now basically in charge. She's in power. So, so he's dead. He's dead. So and he ruled for a good 20 years. And also, so they had so. a daughter, but they didn't have any sons? Nefere. They had a daughter called Nefere, but they had no sons. And so she's able to rule in his place because he is dead. So, yeah. So what happens is he did have sons by some of his minor wives, but none of them are quite old enough yet mm. to rule by themselves. So this basically puts Hatshepsut in the role of regent. Yes. So she becomes regent for Tutmosis Third, who mm-hmm. is her stepson, Step- basically. Stepson slash nephew? Yeah, stepson slash half-nephew or slash nephew. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. very confusing. Fun. Good times. Yeah. Egypt. Yeah. So he's quite young, so he can't rule. So she steps into the role. Yeah. And for about seven odd years, she gets to rule in his stead. And in that time, she starts building amazing works. She starts building this mortuary temple, which is totally different to the architecture that's already existed Mm. in Egypt. It's this beautiful building that sort of sits at the foot of these huge, enormous, rocky cliffs. And it looks like it's carved straight out of the hillside. There are, of course, plenty of like Ramses, for example, was somebody who actually did carve temples out of the hillside. This is still on a large scale, but it's quite sort of understated Mm. and elegant. elegant. (laughs) Definitely elegant is Mm. the word for it. And it's unlike anything else that's been built in about a thousand years. So it's really a political statement of we have power now. Egypt is back in this position of greatness. So she's really continuing her father's work. Yeah, absolutely. Because she does, as we mentioned, she really did look up to her father. So Mm. she's carrying on his work. And a lot of the inscriptions that she wrote on the buildings and the statues and the obelisks that she made the inscriptions refer to her father and they refer to her honouring her father through the work that she yeah. does. So there's this seven-year period where she gets to rule as regent, but as Tutmosis III is getting older, there's this fear that, of course, when he comes to power, he will marry. Yeah. And then whoever he marries is going to kick Hatshepsut about because she won't be able to carry on mm. reigning in that stead. So... We have to think about what's going to happen when Tutmosis III... So is she feeling this threat? Like she knows yeah, that her position so she's, is really vulnerable. That's right. So she knows this position is vulnerable. Mm. She knows she can't do this forever, despite the fact that she's proving herself as this great mm. uh, ruler. And I suppose great queen, And did people wife. like look up to her yeah. a lot as well? Like, so she's doing a lot of these... The thing is, mortuary temples, who do they 
benefit. The idea of going to the afterlife in ancient Egyptian religion is really complex. And in order for you to live on in the afterlife, you have to be preserved in such a way that you can be reborn in the afterlife. Yeah. So death is a massive thing. The Book of the Dead was written for this reason. Spells, yeah. scrolls, so that you had the right answers when you were presented with the questions from the 42 gods when you died, you would be asked specific questions mm. about your soul, about your life. And the Book of the Dead was basically kind of like this paint-by-numbers scroll where literally gaps would be left for you to insert the name of the right. person. Yeah. So you just knew your answers. You would basically just read straight off that to the yeah. gods so that you got everything right so yeah. that you could pass on to the next stage. So, but like, so in terms of the general public, though, do they respect a ruler who goes to these lengths to create these mortuary temples for themselves? It's not seen as being an extravagant waste of public funds. No, it's enormous political propaganda, but it's so powerful. Because yeah. the other thing as well is that they're the not ma- like, but you could be behind no, us a hospital no, and a highway. Not right? at all, because the majority of the populace is illiterate, right? They yeah. can't read hieroglyphs. And they're not going to see the pharaoh or Hatshepsut on a daily basis. All they can know about the person who is in power... And how great they and are. And how great they are yeah. are the visual cues yeah, yeah. that are given to how them about that. How enormous is your yeah. statue? That's right. How big is your temple? All they have to gauge their ruler are the great works their ruler can show them to show yeah. them how powerful they are and how divine they are yeah. as well, how close Actually, to Actually, that's gods. a really good point as well, isn't it? It's really that the gods have given them this power and the pharaohs are chosen and they are more than human. Well, with Hatshepsut, for example, in that mortuary temple on the walls, there is the tale of how she was chosen to be pharaoh by the gods yeah. so she creates this myth about herself as divine as the daughter of of, of the sun god that's the story to legitimize her role of power yeah. because now what she's doing is she's realized that she can't stay in this position of regent for forever she needs to solidify herself as the pharaoh yeah. as the king so at this point in time that's what she does she starts calling herself Pharaoh. She claims the throne as the Pharaoh. She wears the kilt of the Pharaoh. She wears the false beard of the yeah, Pharaoh. Yeah, so this means dressing like a man and appearing like a man, doesn't it? It does. So she begins presenting as a man. But at the same time, she never pretends. But she's not pretending. She's just wearing That's the, right. she's the just, stuff. She's not pretending she's not a woman mm. because her name, her very name Hatshepsut, which she never changes... And she's been the queen all, yeah. all this time. So it's not before. a secret. So she's not trying, not trying to fool anybody. No, her these, name are, is... these are the symbols of power. That's right. And she has to take on these masculine symbols of power in order to be respected. In, in order to be accepted seriously. into that role. Yeah. Her name itself means like first among the noble women. Yeah, sure. So it's yeah. a feminine name. There's no way of disguising the fact that she is a woman. But it is taking so on that, that symbolic. What's his French name, guy? Champollion. Yeah, how did this confuse him for so long? If he's the he guy a who deciphered in the early 1800s, <laughs> who's deciphering the hieroglyphics? He's like, interesting. Her name in first means first among the noble women, but she's a king. Oh, but also boy. so much about her was erased. Yeah, actually, later that's on. a good point. But yeah. that's jumping ahead. So. I want to take us back to so this idea that she's trying to solidify her power as pharaoh. She's trying to make her reign 
legitimate. So all the pharaohs did this, had myths about how they were divine yeah. and how the gods had chosen them. And likewise, she comes up with this myth about how she was chosen to rule as well. And the hieroglyphs on her mortuary temple sort of stage by stage tell this story of how she became the daughter of the gods. So in her story, she is the daughter of the god Amun, who is basically the god of gods. And when combined with Ra into Amun-Ra becomes basically the god of gods and also the sun god. Mm -hmm. Which I remember from the very famous Brendan Fraser film, The Mummy. (laughs) Excellent film. Tom Cruise's, I can't, I can't even, I won't see it with Tom Cruise. It's not. Oh, there is Tom Cruise mummy film, isn't there? He's no Brendan Fraser. (gasps) He's no Brendan Fraser. So true. He can't do silly. He can't do tongue in cheek. He can't take, yeah, that's right. Tom Cruise is not a tongue in cheek kind of a guy. He's not. Yeah, so, it's far too earnest. That's right. It's no anyway, Armin Ra. A- anyway, Armin Ra, who has nothing at all to do with Brendan Fraser or the money. <laughs> well, a money. little bit. A little bit. I think that we can say there's a connection. Yeah. Basically, the story goes that he declared his intention to father the new ruler for Egypt and that the new ruler for Egypt was going to be Hatshepsut, already named Hatshepsut before she was even conceived. This was just how it was going to be. So the story goes that disguised as Tutmosis the first disguised as her father he beds the king's of course great wife right and i'll just read you a little this is not a translation of the hieroglyphics this is just a description from my great ancient egyptian uh, we should post a picture of a that picture book. Of it. it's pretty great yeah it's falling apart <clears throat> i've had this since i was a child it's probably printed in like 1969 or something <laughs> Oh, my God, it was printed in 1969. Oh, yeah. What a total guess. Well, we've got to say a number. That's the one. Yeah, so it's a little bit of a romanticised version of the story. So Tutmosis I decides that he will conceive of the new ruler of Egypt. And to do this, he took the outer form of the queen's husband, Tutmosis I, so as to gain easy access to her bedchamber. This is me reading from the book now, which yes. is why I'll put on my reading voice. In his counterfeit form, he passed the guards of the queen's apartments and confidently slipped through the anteroom where the queen's maidservants watched. In the bedchamber, he found the queen fast asleep on her bed, beautiful in form and very desirable to him. As the divine fragrance of the god reached her, she awoke. Mm. Half asleep, she saw the figure before her and recognised it as the king, her husband, and she welcomed him into her bed. He lay with her as he desired and accomplished... What he wanted. Accomplished. He accomplished what he wanted. This reminds me of last week when I read from... Anne Bonny, yep. Anne Bonny's origin story. Correct. This one's much more divine. (laughs) He accomplished what he wanted. His deception had truly been successful, but his divine pride would not allow him to depart without telling the queen who he was. So he revealed himself to her as Amun-Re, king of the gods, lord of the thrones and the two lands, and she, divining his purpose, accepted him and marvelled at his beauty. His love passed into her limbs, and the palace was filled with his sweet perfume. Ooh, there you go. That's pretty sexy. So she's basically her... Mother is a vessel through which the deity is able to create into the yes, world. Correct. Which That's is right. really in line with so many other myths of divine humans on this earth, right? That's right. And how those <laughs> divine humans get their power yeah, and how yeah. they stay in power. This is how it's legitimate. This <clears throat> sort of story would have been perpetuated 
and believed. You yeah. know, there's no reason to suspect that your common Egyptian layman wouldn't believe this story because the pharaohs were divine. They were yeah. the gods. They were the connection to the gods. That's what that whole yeah. wearing that whole false beard was about. It yeah, was about yeah. the connection to the gods. So she has these stories to sort of legitimize her place of power. This is why this story is created. Or who knows? Maybe it's a real story. Maybe it really happened. Well, you never know. <laughs> At this time as well, she was doing a pretty good job of ruling. Yeah, that's right. And if this is the story that you need to tell to maintain that, well, that's a dangerous precedent because there may or may not be some current rulers in our world who use divine origin myths. And propaganda. And propaganda to maintain power. They're probably... History doesn't repeat itself, Lauren. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> But we're not talking about the modern world. We're not talking about current times. We're in ancient Egypt. Yeah. Stay. Focus. Focusing. So the other thing as well is that at this point in time, not only is she being an excellent ruler and she's just getting shit done, but Tutmosis III, her stepson slash nephew, isn't challenging her. Right. So So he's just cool cruising. That's right. He's cool cruising. He's getting to the age where he should be coming into power. But more than likely what he's actually doing is he's just off with the army he's off doing military training he's more than likely off in syria because syria was like one of the places where um at this point in time egyptians were doing a lot of their training military Mm -hmm. sort of escapades off into that part of the world so he's probably off there Mm. living up the life of a soldier being in charge bedding who he wants yeah i was gonna say there's probably a lot of women when you're yeah, royalty that's in right. the military post no, yeah, yeah, they bring in a lot of prostitutes for you. If you don't have any prostitutes, that's fine. Soldiers will just go gangbusters for each other. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Ancient Evenings by Norman Mailer. No, I have not. But Ancient Evenings has oh. a lot of stuff set in the yes. mili- in the ancient Egyptian military. I think you've told me about this before. Yeah, because this it's the Book of Rim Jobs. Yeah. I would just like to I'm say. I'm sure you've told me that before. <laughs> Basically, I'm having memories. It's basically just a novel full of rim jobs. Oh, yeah. There you go, Norman Mailer, right? Yeah. So it makes me imagine that ancient Egyptian military was all of the yeah, ancient Egyptian military yeah. life was. It probably was just full of that. Yeah, yeah. So Tutmosis the Third is off doing that. That's some occupying Syria. That's right. <laughs> yep, occupying Syria and rim occu- jobs. probably occupying some Syrians. Oh. Um, so he, he basically wasn't around to challenge Hatshepsut's rule. Did she have anything to do with his appointment out there? Like, was she the one who was like, oh, stepson slash nephew, I think that it would be good for you to go and train far away well, from here. Well, not necessarily because it was just basically the done thing. For royal men, you would do military training anyway. Yeah, cool. So she wouldn't have pushed him into it. But it certainly seems lucky. It certainly seems like it suited him. Mm. Uh, he wasn't in any hurry to come back and take over rule but at the same time i suppose it depends on who's telling the story but the accepted story for a long time was that hatshepsut was basically this evil woman who refused to let him on the throne right and who basically just kind of did everything she possibly could to keep him off the throne Mm -hmm. Um, that conniving conniving stepmother wicked stepmother 
that we're so familiar with. Yeah. We and have one on the table. We sure. <laughs> we have a, sorry, we've got a little Lego minifigure of um, Maleficent and I didn't know if she was appropriate, but it turns out she is. Yeah, she, but she wasn't a stepmother though. She's just an evil fairy. Oh yeah. You're thinking, right. I think we're thinking of I'm Snow just White. Conf- I'm just conflating all of my, all of the wicked stepmothers the together. Wicked, anyway. Don't do that. Don't conflate all the wicked stepmothers. They're no, individual they wicked stepmothers. They do. And we're going to get to all of them eventually. We, yeah, let's do wicked st- Yes. Yes. Wicked stepmother. It's a thing. Fuck yes. I am down for that. I can see the so- twinkle in your eye. <laughs> yeah. There's okay. a twinkle in your eye. <laughs> but really, historically, she probably wasn't a wicked stepmother. Like, historically, this probably worked out for both of them. Yeah. Because he was more interested in being a military man. Later on, much further down the track, when he does actually come into power... That's pretty much what he spends most of his time doing anyway. So there's nothing to show that he was desperate to hang around at home in Egypt and be the domestic in charge of building stuff. Yeah, So because that's a little bit more boring. That's way more boring than room jobs. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Let's all be honest with each other. So while he's happy where he is, she's busy... Farrowing it up. Farrowing it up. Farrowing it up. Building things. And about a, but the thing is, is that she doesn't shy away from military action herself. So basically about a year after she officially becomes pharaoh, she sends an expedition to Punt, which has never sort of really, I think, been historically defined. Punt. Punt. But it sounds like a backwater town in England. <laughs> no, Sorry. it's not. That's not where they're going. No. Doesn't it though? It does. It does with a can- with, with canal that you go punting on. Is yeah. that what you're thinking? Yeah. Maybe. Sure. Yeah. No, it's actually probably somewhere near Ethiopia, Somalia. Okay. Cool. That sort of part <laughs> of the world, mm-hmm. not Oxfordshire or yeah. Cambridge. Anyway, she sends off a trading expedition. So it's a massive success, and it also sort of shows her ability to put her feelers out further than any sort of pharaoh has done. Yeah, like and, for a long time. For a long, long mm. time. And she succeeds. So there's also this figure of Senemut that is in the hieroglyphs and that is seen over and over again and began as Hatshepsut's daughter's tutor, right? Oh, yeah, okay. And was elevated to overseer of the works, overseer of the granary, overseer of the officials, was this commoner who basically just kind of rose up the ranks. Yeah, Yep. And there was a lot of speculation uh, that they were uh, lovers. Yeah, of course they were. Because Hatshepsut never married again after yeah. Tutmosis II died. And Senemut was a bachelor for his entire life. Right. And that was quite uncommon, really. So there's a lot of speculation that they were lovers. There's also quite close to the tomb that she had built for herself. Eventually he has a tomb built for himself as well. And they both sort of tunnel down into the earth quite close to each other and almost meet almost meet but don't quite don't quite meet so the suggestion that is that in life they could never admit their relationship because of course it was symbolically represented in the fact that they never quite meet but also in the underworld in the afterlife that they could actually be closer together than they ever could be in life oh man oh that's quite romantic quite romantic because i'm guessing that there's not the same level of leniency given 
for women having extramarital relationships as there are for yeah. men having extramarital well, relationships. Well, well, I mean, she's not married or to like anyone. Relationships. Well, yeah, But the true. fact that she's the pharaoh means that she still needs to keep that bloodline. Yeah, yeah, and she can't just have concubines in no, the same way. No, that's that right, a that a male pharaoh could. No, that's right. So the fact that he is a complete commoner yeah. is just outrageous. Yeah, because I'm assuming also that when a pharaoh has second wives and there is a lineage of yeah they are still noble women that's right there's a lineage of a bloodline there yeah obviously your concubines are kind of the lowest of the low but but it would be very rare that they wouldn't be a commoner well and it would also be very rare that a concubine's child would ever possibly make it all the way up to being the pharaoh like so that would never really even be thought of to happen whereas if it happened the other way around and of course the thing is is that if you're a female pharaoh you can't just you pump can't have out, hundreds of children you can't have you hundreds can of children only have the children that you can have that's right you know so you're limited by how many children you can actually and if bear. one of those belongs to a commoner then that's that's right that yeah. the problem is is that then that child is more than likely the very next one in line yeah so their relationship was a big no-no but Interestingly enough, though, Egyptologists have kind of found, like, there's graffiti, okay? So yeah, there's, there's like, always graffiti. There's always graffiti. There's Egyptian graffiti. And there's this one piece of graffiti that gets referred to a few times when in relation to hatchets. Like, there's actually a bit of graffiti, you can Google it, that shows kind of this picture of a man wearing kind of a crown that suggests a man of sentiment's position with a, a female figure bent over in front of him oh, yeah. wearing... <laughs> The crown of the pharaoh oh. and the beard of the pharaoh. So it's kind of a very suggestive bit of graffiti. Yeah, that's like, there's no mistaking what that's all about. That's exactly like, right. Everyone yeah. knew what was going like, on. Everyone's sure. like, this is what's going yeah. on. This yeah. is what's going on. So there's this little bit of Egyptian graffiti. Subtle Egypt. So subtle. subtle. So subtle. So there is this bit of a love affair that's going on underneath all of this. But at the same time, she's also recorded to have probably have led her actual troops into battle on more than one occasion as well. At the front of the line. Yeah, that's right. Actually out of the with the army mm. with the army defeating specifically the Nubians who they were at war with multiple times. Yep. So she's no shrinking violet is our hatchetzer. Yeah. And as I said, she was a builder and she built these enormous obelisks as well. Hers is the only one that's still standing at Karnak. What? Really? And it's like nearly thirty meters high. That's incredible it's enormous that's incredible that it's still standing i'm surprised napoleon didn't nick off with it <laughs> fucking napoleon he nicked off with he nicked off with everything. so much shit he took everything he took everything but he did not take that obelisk and so did the brits everyone took everything but actually in re- relation to that interestingly what happened was after hatshepsut's death so we're just going to jump forward in time mm. right because basically what happens is she just rules. Yeah, she just rules. She, she just rules, rules at ruling. For like she's about great. She 22 does a really great something years. Yeah. She's excellent. She's awesome. She helps to sort of build Egypt back to this enormous power. At one mm. point in time, she probably would have been one of the most famous people on the face of the planet. Yeah, you're right. Like in terms, of, yeah. in terms of what people knew about the world. She would have been really... Powerful, so mm. powerful. One of probably the most powerful human being. And Tutmosis III is just always off doing his military stuff, mm. never challenging her, which also basically suggests that she was just excellent 
at what she did. Yeah, maybe he didn't feel any need to. Maybe he's like, she's got this covered. But this is what confused Egyptologists for a long time because after she did die, quite a few years, they suspect, after her death. So she died mm. and Tutmosis III. Does. Everyone does. It's inevitable. Tutmosis III did come into power. Okay. Once he came into power, he was still all about the military. He was still mm. a military man. But some point into his reign, he started erasing any reference to Hatshepsut anywhere. Started having her actual image carved L- out. Literally chipped off. So, because this is the thing, in Egypt, this is all like carved into stone. It is a very tangible process of signification. And the symbolism of literally chipping that off is quite significant. Complete erasure. The yeah, amount of time it would take to, to chip that off. Yeah. Because, of course, what happens is once you chip that away, you're still left with the silhouette. Mm-hmm. It's still there. You still know that there was a figure there yeah. that has been hacked you away. You lose the detail. You lose the detail. And this is what confused Egyptologists because they couldn't figure out why mm. this name was erased. Mm. And it was erased in public places and in public monuments. But inside her actual tomb in the places where it mattered in terms for her to go to the afterlife because in order to go to the afterlife you have to be symbolized you have so to your name has to be written down so they destroy her ability to get into the afterlife that's right interesting so in the places where it would have mattered to actually cut her off in limbo it was retained it so wasn't touched so, so it's it, not like it's a personal vendetta that's right so it doesn't suggest any personal vendetta against her it's against her as a ruler in a public sense, thus probably we can assume against her femaleness in a public ruling sense. Yeah, and a suggestion that perhaps what happened was that it hit this point in history where it was like, actually, we want to erase any concept or any knowledge that there might have been a female in power, but possibly also much more tied up with an idea of inheritance and um, Mm -hmm. lineage than necessarily with her gender. It could well simply have been that in order to secure a later descendant's line to the throne, it was necessary to erase her line of the throne. Because with her, she only had the one daughter, Nefere, and that wasn't the line that wanted to carry on to the throne. So Tutmosis III wanted his lineage to carry on to the throne. Because technically... Neferesh, would she have a more legitimate claim to the throne? Because even though she is female, she descends from the pure line. She's directly descended from the pure line and directly descended from the daughter of a god. Yes. So if in erasing Hatshepsut, you're actually erasing that line of royalty, which means that a later descendant to Tutmosis III is a more legitimate heir to the throne. Yeah. So... It could have been misogyny. It could have been like, yeah. hey, let's pretend this woman because never I wonder, happened. Is there some great taboo outside of gender that she committed that meant that people had... I mean, does anyone know outside of this why they may have chosen to erase her? Or is it purely this sense of her lineage and her identity? That they uh, other than of? that, it's only the idea that it was that revenge. It's yeah. only The only other concept is that it really was a battle between Tutmosis and between Hatshepsut and that she was that wicked stepmother and that in trying to do it later on, it was his revenge on her. But so much other stuff suggests that that's not the case. It wasn't a vendetta. It's so interesting though, isn't it? Because of this, I think the symbolism of this in terms of that 
absolute concrete chipping into stone in order to leave traces of history. Mm. I mean, this is symbolic of the difference in the, the fact that history is male yeah. is because men have been the ones to write history, right? And that women have been left out of that story simply because they've not had the opportunity or the tools to write their stories. And so women's voices are so silent in history and women's voices are often erased. That's right. And when women, history. that's right. When they do Literally have, erased. when they are actually able to record yeah. their existence and record their power, it's then subsequently yeah. scratched and it's out. Also, it's almost like, it's like a punishment for the, how dare you subvert this system in this way? We must erase any knowledge of this subversion. But this happened in cycles in ancient Egypt, though, like because other women did come into power. It worked for those in power at specific times. Yeah. And obviously, because like we said, the Egyptian, the civilization lasted for literally thousands of years. And so we can't say that the same socio-historical cultural norms remained the same throughout that that period of time reigns Mm. like you know there may have been times in in the civilization where that idea of a woman being in power would be less subversive and times when it would be more subversive and so we can't just assume that just because Hatshepsut had her story erased that the same thing would happen to other female rulers yeah and this is the interesting thing about talking about the symbolism as well when we're talking about the way that she took on those masculine symbols of the false beard and the kilt and wore that sort of stuff. In terms of the propaganda that was later sort of pumped out in terms of statues, because, I mean, obviously you've got your buildings, mm. that's that's propaganda in itself, but statues of your rulers are a specific way of knowing who's in power. And while she was queen, while she was the king's first wife, great wife, the statues of her were very feminine, very yeah. aquiline, yep. very representative of a woman. As she becomes pharaoh, those statues change. change. And uh, the breasts disappear. Yep. The chest becomes flatter. Yep. Uh, the face becomes more masculine. Because yeah. so, these are all symbols of power. These are all symbols of power. So it doesn't actually matter whether or not the woman is in power. She still has to present the masculine and this in order for that thing. to be acceptable. Yeah, this is another thing that still occurs. It's still happening right now is the fact that women in power have to take on masculine versions of power. Masculine traits. Masculine traits of what we typically associate with masculinity, of mm. course. I mean that in inverted commas. But it is. It's about being assertive and aggressive and powerful and square. You know, the fact that shoulder pads existed in the 80s... <laughs> Literally, like this is a symbol of square broad shoulders are a symbol of power. And so women started wearing shoulder pads in order to be more like men if they want to have power. And this is something that has happened since the like very beginning. This history goes back to ancient Egypt. Yes, because there's no version of what powerful femininity is. I think that's debatable. Okay, so it's not as visible. It's not as prevalent. Yes, it's not as it's prevalent. It's simply not as prevalent. I, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I, I absolutely think it exists. It's just, about there's it. just not like, simply, <laughs> there's simply just not as much of it recorded. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's much harder to find. Yeah. And, and it's more difficult to assert 
in a way that's taken seriously and respected. So, uh, yeah, I guess that brings us to the end of Hatchet's story. Mm. But talking about those ideas about gender construction <laughs> and yeah. ideas of femininity and masculinity, yeah, that leads us to a conversation that... Good segue. Well, yeah, it is a good segue. <laughs> it's a great segue. So as we said at the start of this episode, we've been so overwhelmed with responses that we've been having from our listeners, which is great. Yeah. And we actually also had a couple of people get in contact with us and have a few comments about an episode we did mm. a couple of episodes ago, episode number nine. That's right. About Harry Crawford. That's true. And if you remember that episode, that was about Harry, who was assigned female at birth, but then, of course, took on the um, identity of Harry later in life. And this ties very nicely into our <laughs> into our conversation about gender construction. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. So we had a couple of emails that were really, like, friendly – Emails, oh, perfectly they positive emails. Really, yeah, but they did address some really relevant concerns. So we think it's important to bring them up because there were a couple of things about the language we used in terms of talking about Harry that we think are important to discuss. The first one is the use of pronouns. So in discussing Harry's story, we used the pronouns that were used in the literature about Harry. So when we were reading articles about Harry's life, most contemporary writers and scholars use she up until his point of transition and then use he afterwards. And we can't, we had a chat about this and we decided that doing the same thing as that would be the safest course of action. But that doesn't mean that they're perfect. I think we realize now that just because the literature does it, it doesn't mean that that's necessarily the right thing the to best way do. to approach doing yeah. it yeah so um, if we were talking about somebody in a contemporary context we would address that in a completely different way because the well. difference is that if we were talking about a contemporary trans identity we would have that person's voice and we would know their preferred pronoun use absolutely and then the second point as well that we wanted to address was also discussing harry on a podcast called deviant women that's right when yeah. clearly harry didn't identify, he didn't identify as, a, as woman. a woman that's right so the deviant part of deviant women comes from our shared research interests in really deconstructing the notion of femininity one of the aims of the podcast when we began was to think about how restrictive notions of femininity in excuse me while I put my academic shoes on, in heteronormative patriarchal contexts have been challenged in history and in our cultural myths. And we also want to divorce the traditional notions of gendered femininity from biological sex. So in this context, we felt that including the experiences of both trans women and trans men fit our mission. However, after these couple of conversations, I think we realize more now that gender identity is something that is really significant to people and that placing Harry under the banner of a podcast called Deviant Women is obviously problematic in that sense and so we apologize if we got this wrong and if we accidentally offended anyone please know that we really didn't mean to. But at the same time, we don't want to shy away from discussing these sorts of things as well because trans experience and these kinds of conversations are conversations we should all be having. They're conversations that we should be normalizing. That's right. And That's right. we really hope that in the future you'll be on board with us when we do talk about a few more people. Yeah, that's um, right. I actually have a Japanese artist I want to talk about in the near future. Mm. So we'll put that on so, the yeah. list. And this is the thing, like, we are cisgendered heterosexual women, but we really want to be the best allies that we can. 
but we might not always get it right because we do have the privilege of distance, emotional distance from some of these issues. So we don't want to contribute to erasure. We don't want to contribute to silencing. We really want to share these stories. But if we get anything wrong, please let us know because yeah. we really want to get it right. So just come with us as we go forward. Join us yep. in the conversations we have in the future. Help us shape them and yeah. it'll be awesome. Hopefully it'll be awesome. Hooray. <laughs> so I think that's it for us. Do we have week? any clues for next time? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. We do. We're also sticking back in the distant past. Distant past. The distant past this time. We touched on a little bit of mythology today, but not a lot, but we might be touching There's on... There's going to be some more mythology. This is a more of a mythological figure. That's that good. To to. Because, a different continent. Yeah, we've been promising some more mythological mm. stuff coming up. So here we go. Yep. Let's do it. So thank you for joining us. So please, if you like the podcast, share us. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Um, you can also find us on SoundCloud. And of course, jump on iTunes or Podcaster or Stitcher or whatever your podcasting app of choice may be. We would really love some more reviews. Yeah. They've all been great reviews so We've far. Had really good reviews. But please we would add like to some them. more. Add to some them. Some more good reviews. Thank Beautiful. you very much. Excellent. We would love that. And so until next time. Thanks very much, guys. Carry on being deviant. We'll see you next time. Hatshetsup. Hatshetsup. That we have. Oh. Maybe I won't scream Hatshetsup this time. Hatshetsup. Hatshetsup. About Hatshetsup. 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 Yeah, that's close enough. Hang on. About Hatshetsup. Hatshetsup. Fuck. About Hatshetsup. 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 There you go. About Hatshetsup. No, fuck. (laughs) You say it. You do it. Okay. All right. I don't know what you're trying to say. Okay. Let's just try that again. Mm.